this is the time to do that. Your workers have been knocked off of their, you know, safe foundations. Everybody's you know, basically re, sort of rethinking processes. Don't lose that. Once we take the shackles off and we're, you know, the great reset is, is slowly diminishing, you, you're gonna have a chance to go back to the same kind of work that you did before. And what I urge courageous leaders to do is to work with their people to figure out what remains, what can we keep that retains an, uh, a tremendously inclusive uh, culture for our organization, but is incorporating all of these different characteristics that we're going to need to be able to thrive in the future and to be able to deal with the next great reset. You are listening to The Real Leaders Podcast, your number one source for impact leaders harnessing capitalism to sustain the planet, people, and profits. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and that excerpt, my friends, was from Gary Bowles, who just wants to make sure capital leaders find the courage to rethink the day-to-day after this virtual trial. So what will the future of work look like, and what leadership skills does one need to possess? Find out on this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. Enjoy. Okay, here we go. In five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome, everyone, to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. Here today to talk about the future of work is Mr. Gary Bowles. Gary, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Well, Gary... You know, strange times right now. It seems to be like everyone's working remotely, trying to figure out what to do. Um, but before we jump in to your thoughts on the future of work, what intrigued you first about the future? So uh, I have a confession to make. Um, even though I uh, write and lecture extensively about the future of work, uh, the future of education, uh, I, I never was all that interested in college. So I sort of, um, I barely escaped high school. And, uh, and then I, uh, although I did a bunch of odd jobs for years, um, I sort of fell into the family business and it just so happens that my father was a recovering minister, an Episcopalian minister who had been laid off in a budget crunch in San Francisco. And he eventually found a job helping other ministers, um, in the late sixties who themselves were being laid off. And he went to go write a little pamphlet to, uh, help them, which turned into a book called what color is your parachute, which became the world's enduring career manual is 10 million copies in print. So I was actually trained as a career counselor when I was 19 years old. So imagine you're 19 and you're doing workshops with people in their forties and fifties, and you're helping them to figure out how they should change their careers. So, so there's only one takeaway you can have. Well, actually two, uh, the first is do what you love. <laughs> and, um, and the second is go do what you love. That is for me, I realized I was, you know, I learned a lot, but wasn't, wasn't cut out to be a career counselor. Um, and I loved high tech. So I moved to Silicon Valley in the early 80s. So that definitely dates me. And uh, virtually everything I've done since then has had something to do with uh, the technology industry. But um, uh, a lot of the patterns of the things that I lectured on, the people that I talked to um, six, seven years ago, I was invited by the government of New Zealand had come down and do a series of talks on the future of entrepreneurism, future of work. And, uh, and I realized that so much of the issues that we were dealing with just kept on coalescing back into future of work, the future of the organization and so on. And because I've been working with Singularity University now for a number of years, um, helping them to 
design and deliver things like their global summits. Um, the the um, uh, Singularity asked me to come on as, as chair for the future of work a couple of years ago. And so that's become just the anchor for so much of my work. Well, Gary, thanks for sharing that. It's pretty interesting. You know, uh, you said think back when you're 19, that that dates me as well. It's not too long ago. And that seems to be the number one question students are asking themselves when they come out of college. What do I want to do? And they have to feel like they have to have everything figured out. Uh, the question for you, Gary, is, is do people have to go to college nowadays? So I have no moral standing uh, to answer that question since uh I didn't have enough college to stuff into a thimble. So, but um, I'll, I'll just tell you my, my perspective. So uh, parents ask me all the time, you know, how will my kids be okay? And young people ask me all the time, uh, what should I do? Or you know, is it, does it, do I need to know what I should do? Or, you know, and so I, I give you a couple of what I think of as anchors. First is uh, if, if there ever was uh, a very common model for what I call the old rules of work, uh, what my father called the three boxes of life, a big chunk of learning, and then a big chunk of work, and then a big chunk of leisure in the period formerly known as retirement. Uh, if there ever was that pattern where you could just go and uh, go study the right, quote unquote, uh, field, and go to the right college, and go into the right industry, and go to the right company, if there ever was that time, all of those things have changed. And so, uh, I, I honestly can't tell you a single industry that you can get trained for uh, that would guarantee that you'd have work in 10 years. Um, and so instead, what you're going to need to do is be continually adaptive. And so it's critical for young people and especially their parents to dial down the anxiety around picking the, you know, the right school, the right time. What you need to do is to basically learn a process about how you can continually make choices about what you feel you need to do in the world of work. And if you, if you buy that we're all living longer, that you know, now we're having to think about 80 years as being a pretty common uh, life to lead and that it might pretty soon be 100, it might be even more than, imagine an 80 year career. Like imagine what you would do. Well, there's no way you're gonna stay in the same field or the same job for all that time. You're gonna continually pivot. And so what I want younger people especially to do, and, and most especially with the support of their parents, is you should really be exploring how you follow your passions, how you find a thing that you can uh, make money on, a thing that you feel you can do well, a thing that you feel you, you really actually are using skills you most enjoy using. Those are actually the things to learn at that younger time. And, pick, and worrying about picking the specific field or industry and hoping that what you learn in college is going to carry you through for another 40 or 50 years. I mean, that, that world is gone. Gary, what does that feel like when you know what you're doing is what you want to do? Is it a feeling? Is it uh, like, how do you measure something like that, I guess? So that's an excellent question. So I'd say there's a number of different doors to path, pass through to get to that answer. So each of us is driven by different things. So um, I'll, just, I'll just give you an example. Um, uh, so the four things I often talk about as anchors is what I just sort of ran through is, um, for some people it's, it's, can I make money? And that 
is what they feel is their purpose or rather it's the meaning or the, the value or the way that they want to be able to work is they're most, most intent on making money. And especially when we first start working, that's kind of the base deliverable. <laughs> You've got to be able to pay the rent. Um, for other people, it's, uh, are you good at it? That is, are you using skills that you can demonstrate uh, you're actually proficient at? And, and of course, if you keep on working for a while, you're, you're probably going to find out that you make more money if you're good at it, you know, in most, in most professions. So, uh, and to some people, that's like the deliverable. That's that's me. Now, then there's a third door, and that's what are the skills you love using? Or is there a population that you most love working with? Or is there a kind of field or industry you most love being in? And so it's your love of something. It's the driver internally within you that there you feel that there is something that matches the the combination of the skills that you have and the things that you most the problems you most want to solve and then there's a fourth door which is what the world needs um are you driven more by that there's a problem in the world you know i always say there are problems that you choose those are the ones you know for your work that you are constantly looking to solve but there are problems that choose you there's a whole range of populations didn't choose to be homeless, didn't choose to be handicapped, didn't choose to be uh, a, a refugee. And so, so there, some of us are driven by what the world needs. Well, it just so happens that those four different aspects of those four different doors um, is a Japanese model called Ikigai. Um, and uh, it turns out that the people in Okinawa, who Dan Butner profiled in the book Blue Zones, they're the longest lived people on the planet. <laughs> They're those people that are living to 80 or 100 years old, and they don't believe that a life is well lived unless you have done all those things. Something doing, doing something that you can make money at, something that you're good at, something that you love doing, and something that the world needs. I'm drawing a parallel here with like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It, it appears that a lot of the guests on the show, at least that I can speak for, um, you know, had a really successful career, whether it was in finance. Uh, banking, manufacturing, um, just, you know, an overall stud made a lot of money. And now they're having this, like you said, like this existential, this world problem of, of the, I want to go back to my core values and I want to align my skills with something that's going to take on a social or environmental problem. I refer to that as like a crucible, something where a lot of elements come together to create something new. What do you think that is? And do you think that you can start out trying to pursue those core values and social and environmental changes before you make money and, and have that security? So that's an excellent question. <laughs> um, the old rules of work were basically moving, you think, think of it as a stack. Okay. So you, uh, Meslow's hierarchy, hierarchy, I'll come back to in just a second because I think there's some things to learn. Um, mm -hmm. that Maslow gave us a great language to use aside from anything else, but but I'll stick with, with the Ikigai model for just a second because um, it seems to resonate with a lot of people. The audience, I, did, I did 71 lectures in nine countries last year, and it just seems to resonate with people around the world. So, um, so uh, when, when you first are starting to work, you have this baseline deliverable. Or if you fall down Maslow's hierarchy, I used to be uh, on the board of a Nonprofit did job counseling for the homeless in Los Angeles. And if you so if you you fall off of Maslow's Maslow's pyramid and you're at the baseline, um, then you just need money. I mean, you know, the, the, what 
if you, a lot of people, when they picture a career, they think of it as sort of this constantly moving arc from the lower left to the upper right. But the truth is for many people, it's a fever chart. It's spiking up where you're making money and spiking down where you're not sure. making money. And that's that, that precarity or that, you know, that sort of up and down nature is true, whether you're a gig worker or it's true whether or not you have challenges in, in bouncing up and down Maslow's hierarchy. And so what, what's, what's important, with the, re, the reason I talk about sort of the mentality behind Ikigai is that the old rules of work, your, your parents or your grandparents would tell you, look, just make money. That's just, that's, that's it. That's like the baseline deliverable. If you're good at it, great, because then you'll make more money. But that's it. Like if you're, if you're feeding your family and putting your roof over your head, done. Like don't, don't worry about anything more. But one of the things that my father started to point out 50 years ago was that, well, no, but if you love what you're doing, you're going to be better at it, right? So you want to keep moving up the stack. And then it just so happens that many people, the, that, that old rules workman model was, well, you know, maybe once you've made a whole bunch of money and you're retired, then you can give away money, help people or volunteer. Well, young people come out of school and, and they flip the stack. So they, they're often saying, what does the world need? If I can focus on that, I'm gonna love doing it. If I love doing it, I'm gonna get better at it. If I get better at it, I'm gonna get it paid for, better, better for it. And so, so they flip the stack, right? They're coming at it from the opposite direction. Now, parents freak out when they see that because they, they say to me, why won't my kid get a real job? Well. Picture this. In the old model, you had what my father called the three boxes of life. Education, then work, then leisure in, in the period formerly known as retirement. So you made a big investment in education. So you were asking early on, does anybody have to go to college? Well, sure. There's still plenty of professions where employers, that's the strongest signal you can send them. You've got a degree, got the MBA, you know, and, and, and there's also there's certain fields, you know, like like brain surgery, where I kind of, I don't want you to have just watched a YouTube video and walk into the operating room, sure. right? So, so, so there's, there's this old model of first I get a whole bunch of education and then I'm going to work and I'm going to amortize that investment over a long period of time. Young people are coming out of college if they even go to college and then they're getting a day job, but then they're also driving for Uber at night and then they're working on a startup with their friends and then they take a gap year and then they, you know, so they have this constantly moving landscape of work. And I call that a portfolio of work. Hmm. And it's a, it's a totally rational response to an exponentially changing world. Your, your investment counselor, um, and this is probably <laughs> very top of mind for many people here in, in what I call the great reset um, uh, during the COVID crisis, the, the, uh, your, your investment counselor is going to tell you have a bunch of safe investments then you can take a little bit more risk and then you can have a small amount that's a lot more risk, right? Well, that's exactly what young people are doing and, and older people as well nowadays where they're building this portfolio of work. And, and so I just caution people to be as intentional about that as possible. You, you, there's, there's, a, there's a bunch of tremendous benefits to it, flexibility, variety, and there's a bunch of challenges to it that can be very precarious income. And so... Uh, it's, it's important to be able to develop the skill set to be able to manage that. That's a different skill set than when you just had to go to a nine to five job. And we're just going to pause here really quick, folks, because do I have a story for you? It involves eating cookies and giving back. And if you like the sound of that, 
you, my friends, have to learn about my new sponsor, Nunbelievable. They're a direct-to-consumer baked goods company on a mission to donate 1 million meals to the food insecure by 2022. Here's how it works. When you or your corporation or a friend orders a box, it's going to show up at your house, at your door, nicely packed, and then they are going to donate two meals to soup kitchens across America. Okay, folks, another thing you need to know is that you, lucky listener, today are receiving 25% off. You gotta try these cookies, they're amazing. This one right here is the the double chocolate chip. I've already gone through the peanut butter today. Delicious. Again, folks, real-leaders.com slash podcast. Enter in code REALLEADERS, that's all caps and one word, REALLEADERS, And you, my friends, are going to have a box like this. Show up at your door. It's going to be 25% off. And you're also going to be donating two meals to someone in need. So be a smart cookie and build sweet relationships with the unbelievable cookie. Enjoy. Got it. Be be intentional. And is the world willing to pay you for that service? I think is probably the key is... uh, it's interesting times right now. I mean, we're experiencing at least, you know, my generation, you know, this is like the first cause for us to be like, geez, you know, we really stand up. This is a recession that we're experiencing. We experienced it when our parents got hit by it. And now we're in the state where we were able to drive Uber. We were able to drop off food and do deliveries and do side gigs. But that whole gig economy right now is slowing down. And the word sustainability is becoming is coming to the surface of are these jobs sustainable in an environment like this? How do you see this mini recession right now? I don't, I don't want to call it a recession, a bear market right now. Let's just call it that for now. What do you see? How do you see this impacting the gig economy and the overall future of digital work economy? So I, the reason I call this the great reset is because uh, we had the great recession and uh what we're doing right now, we, we, we've, we've never in, in the history of humans, except during a war, um, or in, in some cases, um, in, in, uh, uh, when there were epidemics in the past, but um, we've never had a period where we basically all collectively said, all right, we need, to, we need to hit the pause button. And then we have to figure out what that means. Like, how do we keep working or not keep working? And so, so collectively, we are all going through one of the largest experiments in human history. There's a billion and a half people on the planet right now that are being either asked or required to stay home and to figure out, okay, if you're staying home, then how are you going to continue to live? And, uh, and, and there's, there's no roadmap. There's no user manual. We're all just figuring it out together collectively. So I'm going to tell you that there's an awful lot of discussion between a lot of the networks that I'm plugged into and, and great uh, thinkers and leaders. And, and I'll just tell you some of the consistent patterns that come out. Mm. The first is that I've been saying for quite some time that we're unbundling work. That is that traditional construct of a job where you had to be nine to five in the same place as other people commuting there. You know, I, I did a talk for Singularity University's virtual summit last week, and I, I showed pictures of rush hour commute and a massive cubicle farm. And I said, remind me why this was a good idea. Uh, it's not, it's not human. It's not, it's, it's, it's really not, you know, the, um, you know, going, going way, way back, people have talked about human thriving as being constantly 
changing context about doing different things in a day and being around different people and being outdoors and being indoors. And, and, and we've, we've, we've lost a huge amount of that. And so, so what I hope, I'll continue a couple of things I hope remains. First off, that this traditional construct of, of a job, we're unbundling that so that it isn't, doesn't necessarily have to be as place-based as possible. That is, if you want to live in a remote small town where you can afford a home and, and a, a quiet life, yet still work and make a good wage from a company that's in some other place, then that's going to get more likely. I'm going to, hopefully more managers are going to develop the kind of courageous leadership that allows them to be able to manage distributed teams. Right. That's we've failed our managers by forcing them into this model where they have to see the people that they're managing. And, and uh, I hope we've broken that. Second is that I hope that we double down on skills. We double down on human skills. You know, I always say work is just three things. Human skills applied to tasks to solve problems. We need to back up and say, well, wait a minute. What are the problems we're asking these humans to solve? And couldn't they be solving them together in a bunch of different ways? They don't all have to be in the same place. They don't have to go to meeting after meeting after meeting throughout a day. Uh, we know that we're going to discover that we're much more productive right now, um, deeply more productive when we're not running from meeting to meeting. We know that we're going to learn the digital technologies that allow us to be able to collaborate when we're distributed. Uh, much more effectively. That's already, it has to happen. That's a skill set where many, many people are developing in real time. It's pretty likely that we're going to see that uh, the, the commitments that companies make about full-time work and about salaries and so on, that, that that's going to be at risk um, because the more, you're saying gig workers, for instance, they just suddenly lost a whole bunch of work. Well, nobody had to pay them unemployment insurance. No employer had to, Right. So so that's a contract that has broken and that puts a whole bunch of people at risk when something like this happens because they're not getting sick pay. They're not getting unemployment pay. So that's another one of my hopes that will remain out of this is that we will actually come up with those new constructs that will allow us to ensure that a wide range of workers have those kinds of protections going forward. So th those are some of the things that I believe are pretty likely coming out of this. And, and I'll tell you the most macro I hope is that what we're learning as we're doing this global experiment is that we realize just how connected we really are. We've, mm -hmm. we've gone through this polarity experiment that hasn't worked really well, where we vilify each other constantly on social media and in news. And, and what I hope is we're really understanding that th there's so much that connects us. There's so much that is similar for that all of us are going through in our experiences. And we're, we're all going to figure out that when we come out of this those connections should remain. Well, Gary, I really like that uh, analogy of what are we doing? What are we doing here? Like we're all going to one place. It's like a, a beehive. Everyone's uh, populating in cities. We're moving because there's more commerce there. But uh, what fascinates me are like civilizations, how they're built and they extend to the outer limits of their cities and they use up all the resources. So I had a had a chat yesterday with James Ehrlich of uh, Regen mm. Villages, and he was yeah. bringing up this point. And, you know, why can't we live in the decentralized cities around the entire world where we're just a bunch of lily pads communicating, using renewable resources? No, and wouldn't life be great? Um, the only thing with that is it, it's, it's just a little too dystopian for me. Um, the only reason I say that is because... It's just like, that's just, I feel like that's just human nature. Like capitalism to me is a reflection of human nature through independence, through freedom of choice, through free markets. Um, and it's 
also not an equal one. It's not an equal playing field. And here in America, the idea is to go into um, a country that has it great, like uh, if I can speak for anyone who's traveled abroad, they have great lives. They have no big, you know, big needs or anything, but it's, it's our duty to go in there, improve their economy, grow their business, bring it to a global market, and then retire to go back to where they were originally. So it's an interesting thought there. What, what is your stance on like the future of work and mobilization and where do you see that fitting in in America? So um, I, I think what James's work is great because what you always want are shining examples totally. of how humans can collaborate. And even though they're not likely to scale, that is, you're, you're not going to get millions of regen villages, although that's certainly one model. But, um, but I think it's indicative. You, you want humans to be able to show that they can come up with these ways to collaborate and to build these very um, human-centric kinds of living and working environments. Now, having said that, uh, I'm sure you may remember, but back in the 70s, there was a lot of discussion about the death of the city. <laughs> Yet, we crossed over the point where more than 50% of all the people in the world live in urban areas. And the projections right now are that by 2050, it'll be 80%. So what we've done is we've centered a whole bunch of economic uh, benefit in these, these mega cities. Hmm. And, and if you look at the flows of capital and the flows of data, it's very, very clear. This is where a huge amount of the value is being created. Now, that's a set of decisions. And a, a lot of those decisions are not laws of nature. Um, it's not like global climate change, you know, where we had a perfectly good planet and we broke it. That's why we can't have nice things. Um, it's, it, these are laws of humans. You know, these are laws of economies. So uh, I, I co-founded something back in 2008 called so SOCAP, Social Capital Markets, which is now the world's largest conference focused on doing well and doing good. Money so, and meaning. <laughs> money and meaning. Intersection of money and me. And so, uh, and then we handed it off to our co-founders years ago. Um, and I'm still very involved in that arena. And I'll tell you my basic premise. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm uh, writing a book right now on the future of work. And this is one of my, my you know, sort of anchors is what, what the, uh, the framing is for how you think about the, um, the, the combination of the societies and the economies that we build. Because these are just decisions. You know, and we can, we can make different decisions. So our peculiar form of capitalism in the West, uh, and especially in America, uh, has actually a number of design heuristics that were created by people with wealth. And so they're actually designed to increase these flywheel effects of people with wealth. And so the, the, what we want to be true in America is that the, um, the, we, we all have uh, equal uh, opportunity. What we, uh, what, we, what we really want is equal access to opportunity. That is, if you were born in an inner city, you would have the same chance of moving up rungs on the ladder uh, as anybody else that was born in another place or higher up on the ladder. Well, it doesn't work that way. If you don't have a college degree, you have a one in 10 chance of moving up one rung on the ladder if you were born in the bottom rung. And, and, and there's a bunch of complicated reasons for that, but one of them is that we actually reward capital over labor. We, we tax uh, uh, the, the, the rewards of having money at a lower rate than we tax the rewards of working. So you, you just can't work your way out of 
out of you know upper rung on the ladder. You you actually have to have the money in the first place. And so so I don't, I'm not trying to to talk about these dynamics to to bend anybody out of shape. It's much more we we have to design the world that we want, right? And so the truth is, capitalism has created a massive amount of benefit for a huge number of people, but it's lumpy. It's not distributed evenly. I you know I've I've written a series of papers. Um, unbundling uh, media, unbundling higher education, unbundling work, unbundling the middle class, and they all have the same dynamic. Um, exponential technologies and our peculiar form of capitalism evaporate the middle. Hmm. There's flywheel effects that, you know, basically increase, if you're making money at the top, you make more money. And there's flywheel effects that basically right now are evaporating middle class work and sort of pushing uh, wages down. And, and those are perfectly understandable dynamics. It's just, you know, I don't think that's the inclusive economy that we all sort of want. So, so there's no question we need to double down on capitalism, but it has to be inclusive capitalism. Mm. It has to be where we're helping people to be able to find or create meaningful, well-paid work. Then, then they get compensated fairly for it. And that's going to continue as opposed to, you know, this sort of flywheel thing you know, uh, where, where the internet and other technologies is actually helping to evaporate the middle. So are you suggesting that maybe like a ceiling on a CEO's salaries or a percentage of that, uh, where, you know, the, the rest of the money is allocated back to the stakeholders in the organization? So I'm, I'm, I'm always a fan, more a fan of, of taking the positive route of, okay, so how do you increase the benefit for, for, many. Um, and, and then the, the decreasing benefit for something, you know, well, we have to figure that out, right? Mm. That's a, that's a set of, of agreements in the, the intersection of a society and an economy. So if you look at the Nordic countries, look at Germany, there's a whole bunch of agreements and they, you know, we call these laws, but there's a whole bunch of agreements um, that you can't just lay off workers, or if you're going to lay off workers, uh, you have to offer people the chance to be able to all take a cut in salary so that you don't have to lay off workers. You, you know, there's, there's, there's a whole bunch of agreements, um, in, in the form of laws and taxation that, that essentially distributes a lot more of the value. And so think about, uh, I, I'd like to think more about the ways that we can ensure that people are going to be able to find or create meaningful, well-paid work. So, so what are the ways that we could actually, you know, sort of amplify the processes that we use to be able to both modify the system, that is make access to, to opportunity easier, and also help upgrade humans, like how, how we help people to be able to continually develop the skills, that the superpowers, mm-hmm. to be able to solve the problems of tomorrow. Th- these are the two places I sort of focus is how do we increase more opp- access to opportunity? And then um, and ensure that people are going to get paid, you know, meaningful uh, for meaningful well-paid work. And then and then how are we going to help humans to be able to continually adapt and use their their best superpowers? And that means transforming education systems. That means companies making much bigger investments in training. Uh, That means uh, personal commitments to lifelong learning. All of those things that will help each of us to be able to thrive. Now, Gary, when you're having these panels when you're having these moderations these keynote talks about this topic what is some of the feedback or skepticism that you receive and how has that helped you maybe refine your your thesis good question so uh the 
First off, I, I think it's important. One of the reasons I, I talk about four domains of the future of work is it's important to understand just how it works because you find that, that anything that has to do with work is, especially work markets and workforces and you know um, economies, that they're, they're, they're complicated. I mean, you can't even get two economists to agree. Sure. <laughs> what the right strategy is to, to right now during the great reset to be able to ensure that we're all going to be able to thrive when when eventually we we take the the um the, the shackles off and we're all able to go out in the world again um so so if these things are really really complicated and so the first thing is i try to help people and i don't i don't say i'm i'm right as a matter of fact i tell every audience if you disagree with me i want you to challenge me they do uh, but I say, first off, understand that there are four domains. It's, it's individuals, organizations, communities, and countries. And each of them has a problem statement. Individuals, I keep saying it, just want to be able to find or create meaningful, well-paid work today and tomorrow. That's all people want. Mm. And there's other things you want in life, but if you could do those things and everybody on the planet could do it, we'd, we'd probably be okay. Organizations keep telling me that they, they need the talented workers that can help them solve the problems of today and tomorrow. And that's kind of it. There's lots of other things, but you know, unless you're going to run an entire company on AI and robots, you need talented people. You're going to need them for a long time. Um, communities want to be ecosystems where everybody can thrive. And then finally, when I, when I do workshops with the, the ministers of labor or education for different countries, they want to build inclusive economies. Mm. So individuals, organizations, communities, and countries. And so first of all, I say, okay, this is kind of the four domains. This is kind of what we're all designing for. Now, where do you fit? Are you, are you just trying to, to make sure that you have the work that you want or you're helping a specific population? Great, there's tons of strategies for that. Are you an organizational leader? And are you trying to figure out how you're gonna be able to, to channel the, the energies of humans to solve problems? Are you a community leader? Um, and, and many people are all of those. They're, they're individual workers. They work in a company and they have, live in a community. And then do you feel that you can actually feed into or you have influence over what happens in your region or what happens in your country? Or you do at least you know, be knowledgeable. Um, we're, all, we're all talking an awful lot about really big, weighty issues about how we're going to restart our economies. Um, and, and we all have an opinion about it. So, so when I get pushback, it's normally, first off, people have questions, not so much, are, is that right? But okay, now what could I do? Like, like I'm only one person, or I'm only one leader of an organization, or I'm only one community. And there's an answer for every one of those. <laughs> there, there are strategies. I'm actually starting a newsletter literally just today. Um, if you go to my website, uh, gbowls.com, or um, a ping on LinkedIn, um, we're just starting a newsletter, a weekly newsletter, synthesizing all of these different strategies that we hear from all over the world. And just going to start sending that out on a weekly basis to people that want to be able to just understand these different arenas and then say, okay, what, what are people doing? What can I do? What, you know? And if it's something as focused and personal as homeschooling your kids during this period, or if it's something as big and weighty as feeding into what we're going to do to be able to restart our economies, there's, there's work everybody can do. Mm. Um, but, but the pushback normally comes when people have to change their behavior. So, so if you ask somebody who is running a company and you tell them, you know, if you're just focused on shareholder value, I get that. 
I get that. And there's a there's a lot of people that you know have very very strong belief that that's the way to economic benefit for everybody. But, you know, Jack Welch Freedom. said it was the world's dumbest idea, and he's right. Um, and and I, I don't talk so much about stakeholder capitalism. What I talk about is inclusive capitalism. But I basically say, look, you know, you you have more constituencies than just your your shareholders. If you just double down on your shareholders, those other constituents are likely to be put at a disadvantage. So you've got to figure out how you could meet the needs of those various stakeholders. You can pay your employees a living wage. You can offer great value to your customers. You can actually be beneficial to the communities in which you operate and all of those and be intensely profitable by doing. Got it. Okay. So by doing that, by being inclusive, everyone's going to get what they want. One, two, three, four. It, it's not easy and it's, it's always messy. And it's always, you're always going to, there's always going to be somebody who's going to be more disadvantaged and others are going to be more advantaged. And that's why it's a work in progress, right? But, but I've got tons of examples of courageous leaders in organizations who have said they're going to pay their employees a living wage, who have said that they're going to be tremendous uh, beneficiaries of their communities and, and have incredibly successful companies doing it. Gary, you mentioned the inclusive, inclusive economy. Now, I interview a lot of social entrepreneurs, sustainable companies, certified B corporations. Uh, so I hear conscious capitalism. I hear business is a force for good. I hear, um, you know, uh, what do you say? Yeah, stakeholder value, shareholder value, uh, maximize stakeholder value versus shareholder value. What do you define as the inclusive economy and why, why is it separate from all the others? So, so the, uh, the marvelous thing about the world that we live in is there's so many different perspectives and, um, and then the labels matter, right? So, uh, but the labels are constantly changing. We, and we've seen this in a variety of the different um, initiatives that my group has been involved in throughout the, throughout the years. And, and, and so what happens when you see these big changes in markets and we think of these as market shifts, right? So um, you mentioned B Corps. Uh, uh, in 2008, when we started SoCap, we talked about the need for new forms of companies. And we got laughed at by a whole bunch of people. It's like, well, wait a minute, we have LLCs and S-Corps and C-Corps. Isn't that enough? Well, no, actually, you need a set of agreements with your shareholders. If you're going to have a positive impact in the world, you're going to start Warby Parker um, uh, or Tom Shoes. You're, you're, you, you, you've got to be able to have an agreement about what you're going to do and the positive benefits you're going to have. And then that means a new form of corporation with agreements baked into your charter. So, so we got laughed at for a lot of these things that are now considered, Hey, people are just, this is just what you do. Right. Yeah. So, so the, the, but what happens is people have different words for the same thing and the same words for different things. And then over time they sort of gel mm. and, uh, and then people sort of generally agree on it. So the reason we talk more about inclusive capitalism mm. is because uh, when you look at an inclusive economy, economies are always optimized for certain things and not for others, right? I always say policy is only two things. It's either lubricant or it's uh, glue. It's either, it's either going to accelerate things you want to have happen or it's going to stop things you don't want to have happen. And usually it's stopping things you don't want to have happen. And so, so, that, so there's a lot of designs of markets that, that actually are trying to encourage either certain kinds of behavior, discourage other kinds of behavior. And inclusive capitalism, you step back and you look at those dynamics and say, what will be the consequences of these decisions? That's what you do. 
You, you, you have to have a design thinking mentality, and then you've got to test and iterate to be able to determine you're going to get the benefits that you want. Now, you can't always do that. We're going through the largest capital experiment in the history of the world right now, and we're guessing how we're going to restart our economies. But in many cases, the decisions that you make, how you price your products, the kinds of customers that you're trying to market to, the, you know, we can actually test those things. We can iterate them. The way that you compensate your, your workers, the way all of these things are processes that can be inclusive. Mm. You can involve them in the process. You can involve your, your workers in the, in the way that you are thinking about compensation and make them part of that discussion. And, and if you, in your community, you can involve the people that have been marginalized in the past in the process of discussing what the new solutions are going to be. It, 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 it violates people's thinking that you should actually be sitting down with homeless people and asking them how you can help them to be able to solve this problem. But the truth is we've seen over and over again, that's what an inclusive set of processes involves. So inclusive capitalism is basically just the same kind of mentality. It's that it's that you've got a range of different constituents. You're designing markets to be able to benefit some and not benefit others as much. And that is a, pro a set of processes that can be itself more inclusive. And I can give you tons of examples of companies that do that on an ongoing basis. It's exciting times right now. It's like you mentioned, it's the great reset. I really enjoy that, that thinking right there. And uh, just to go off kind of what you were saying as well, uh, you know, you have your you know, one, two, three, four individuals, organizations, communities, countries, you have this inclusive economy, you have um, uh, more recession proof companies because of these inclusive relationships. Um, now, right. we're at a point and, and this is my understanding of this. Uh, I like to call it like an interregnum. We are between reigns of what is culturally acceptable. And we're figuring that out. And I think the Great Reset right now is an interesting time because we like the cost of capitalism, which you alluded to, cannot comfortably be ignored anymore. It just can't. Uh, we can't continue and sustain uh, our cities. We can't continue and sustain our environment, our air because of business. Uh, and these all these factors are coming into play. Now, I do want you to elaborate on some examples and some leaders in this space, Gary, that you respect and you look up to that are doing a good job of this. So, uh, yeah, no, thanks. I, I think that's I think it's really important just to, to I always say, first off, one of the, 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 the key uh, aspects, um, uh, one of the ways that change happens is that courageous leaders take stances that are initially unpopular and mm. and but are, but they know are, are morally correct. That is. They're, they're consistent with their own ethics. And, and so, and that, 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 that might sound really soft, um, but uh, this is the world that we're, we're creating right now is uh, we, we, we created a form of capitalism that tried to divorce itself as much as possible from um, what, what it thinks of as irrational behavior, especially rational market behavior. And, um, and, and, and the truth is there's a ton of decisions that humans make that influence markets that have nothing to do with rationality. <laughs> I just read uh, Dan Ariely's work. He's, a, he's an old friend and, and he talks about why we do things against their own best interests. Mar markets are completely irrational. There's no, 
there's 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 very very few arguments you can make that make it clear that we're we, you know we we make rational decisions even given the heuristics that we that we all believe we follow. So, but I'll give you an example. So um, I was uh, Tom Friedman asked uh, had invited me to a talk that he was giving um, at a at a kind of Dove Seidman's office uh, about a year and a half ago, maybe two years. And uh, Mark Bertolini at the time was the CEO of it. And Mark and I had never met, but we just ended up falling in a conversation. And he just had a big grin on his face. And he said, uh, I said, why, why are you so happy? He said, well, I had a great, great lunch yesterday with one of my top shareholders. And, um, and, uh, and he thanked me for you know, in, investing in my company. And uh, I said, well, why do you thank you? And he said, well, what happened was uh, about a year and a half before, uh, he had made an announcement uh, that he was going to, uh, uh, throughout Edna, he was going to focus on wellness and well-being. He was going to institute courses on mindfulness. He was going to encourage employees to meditate. He was going to create spaces in the offices where people could have you know, a chance to be able to do a, a little momentary reset through their day. And, and basically, he was going to try to create a better work environment for humans. Mm. And it just so happened that he had a pretty substantial investor. I think a hedge fund guy was an investor in his company. And the guy took him out to lunch that, after Mark made this announcement. And then the guy just leaned on the table and said, uh, you know, well, what if your top investor told you he didn't want you to do any of these things? And uh, it's not repeatable in public, but Mark basically said, you know, go pound sand. Yeah. And, um, and so the guy did. And then the other investor came in and bought the company's stock in the stock. Market. And so, so that's an example of a courageous leader. Um, if you look at Etsy, at the founding of um, the international marketplace Etsy, uh, which was, initially was one of the first B Corps, um, uh, they, they, they did a, the, the founding team did a great job of creating a model where craftspeople in remote countries and developing economies could get paid well, for them was it a princely sum to sell their their um, crafts on an international marketplace and then you're going to have a party and you want to get 10 of something to be able to give to your guests you can get it for you know insanely cheap compared to your, your local market and so that's a great example of creating a company designing literally designing a two-sided market platform to ensure benefit for both mm -hmm. but then the company went public the new investors kicked out management. One of the board took over and they raised all the prices on the supply. Mm. So, so that's an example of where the capital made completely new decisions about the way that that market should function and put one set of constituents at a greater disadvantage. That doesn't mean that people aren't still getting value out of it. It just means that it's, you know, it's harder. It's harder people can't, it's harder to make as much money. And so, so that's what I look for is where courageous leaders come up. I and mean, I've mentioned Warby Parker, I mentioned, you know, um, Tom Shoes, um, Allbirds. I mean, these are all companies that have made commitments to doing well and doing good. What they are seeing is that the market values that, right? So, so this is, it's, you can call it, you know, just complete capitalistic marketing. We're going to, you sell one and give one away, and we're going to do that because we want you to be the one buying the thing. You can, you know, say that that's just good marketing, but the truth is, when it's done authentically, um, then then humans benefit, and mm. and everybody wins because you've designed a company that actually can do better than competitors. Um, I don't know what the most recent numbers were, but Warby Parker 
actually had uh, last year had a better year to year first store um, retail uh, uh, sales average per square foot than, than many Apple stores. Hmm. So th- this is something you can design for. And all it takes then is courageous leaders to be able to lead the way. Yeah. And, and going back to your, you know, your four quadrants, you know, the individuals, the organizations, the communities and the countries, it just t- taps on all of them, really. Uh, yeah. I found with all these organizations, if you have those core values, if you're doing to rephrase and kind of what you said, to be a leader and do something that's not externally validated at first, but to stick to those moral principles, to stick to um, the company's core values, uh, they're attracting people with the same core values. They're retaining them for longer. They're working they're more fulfilled. Uh, it, it spreads the, to the communities. It does great things for society and for the environment. So it's really interesting times right now. Now, Gary, the question I have for you is uh, advice now for leaders listening to this, going through this, uh, this great reset right now. What advice would you give to them? All right. So, um, so I, I, I don't want to, I don't have the hubris where I, I think of, you know, I've, I've never led a large organization or even a mid-sized organization <laughs> that's a smaller organization. Um, it's, uh, it's surpassingly hard. This is a very challenging era. It's really, really tough, but I'll, I'll just, I'll just give you some thoughts for, uh, what I've, I've, I've seen for the people that I think are, are, um, Approaching the challenges of today with what I, what I hope are some of the, the, the most effective strategies. So the first one is take care of your people and, and whatever that means. So um, there's, a, there's a range of different tools that you've got in your toolkit. Uh, you know, there, there are some leaders that have laid off immediately, like just, like just said, okay, Let's do the numbers. Great. All right. That, 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 some, that some set of people is just gone. Um, and there are others that have said, listen, we're all going to tighten our belts and we're going to get through this and we're going to apply for government loans. We're going to do, I mean, anything we can do to be able to retain every single worker we can. And we're going to ask everybody to take a little bit of a pay cut or some unpaid leave for a period of time, or, but we're going to get through this together. Right. So, so the first thing is figure out, what taking care of your people need, means and, and then do the best that you possibly can. Um, that's, that's the first one. Second is, uh, uh, I think Rob Emanuel has gotten a lot of credit for saying, you know, that, that basically don't never, never waste a, um, a crisis. So think about what you can do to transform your organization in the ways that will help it to become more adaptive and resilient in the future. And so a more distributed workforce is a more resilient one. Right. So if everybody's coming into the same mothership every single day, commuting in the same location, you have a monoculture. And as we have absolutely determined over and over again, monocultures are at risk. Um, we, 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 my company, we produced a conference in the future of work in Detroit last year. And um, and that's a, that's an example of a former monoculture culture and, and economy that is still putting the pieces back together. And it's, you know, they're doing a tremendous job. Detroit is definitely, it's really coming back, but it's been a long haul. And so avoiding monocultures, avoiding having everybody that is hired, you know, looks the same way, comes from the same backgrounds, thinks the same way, that's not a resilient organization. So, so everything you can do to try to build the heuristics of a more adaptive organization, a more inclusive organization, uh, an organization that is more nimble, 
This is the time to do that. Your workers have been knocked off of their, you know, safe foundations. Everybody's you know, basically re, sort of rethinking processes. Don't lose that. Once we take the shackles off and we're, you know, the great reset is, is slowly diminishing, you, you're going to have a chance to go back to the same kind of work that you did before. And what I urge courageous leaders to do is to work with their people to figure out what remains. What can we keep that retains an, uh, a tremendously inclusive uh, culture for our organization, but is incorporating all of these different characteristics that we're going to need to be able to thrive in the future and to be able to deal with the next great reset. Interesting. Interesting. Very good points there, Gary. Obviously I can't speak for anything as well. So I'll keep my thoughts to myself, but let's, let's wrap this up though. Let's wrap this, let's wrap this up. Let's bring this full circle. Talked a lot about leadership today. You mentioned heuristics a lot as well. Something that can't, or was very difficult to transcribe to other people. Uh, yeah. We've talked about the four quadrants. We talked about what color is your parachute today. Gary, we've talked about a lot to you. What is your definition of a real leader? So um, I, I think of it, I think of the characteristics as being contextual. Like there's, it's, it's difficult for me because I've, I've just seen so, so many different, um, we, did, we did everything from a workshop for refugee youth in Amman, Jordan, to um, a workshop for um, you know, uh, leaders uh, from Chile um, uh, on, a, on a video conference call last year. And, and, I, and I, I think I'm, I'm trying to think of apply a leadership model in each of those different environments. And, um, and I have a little bit of a failure of imagination because different circumstances and different times require different characteristics. But I'll tell you what I think of as the three that, that remain, that are, that are consistent. So, um, and it's competence, compassion, and courage. So, uh, and, and each is necessary. Not, not, none of them is sufficient. Each is necessary. So competence, um, if, you, if you think of uh, cultures, of organizations as a, as a quadrant system. So this axis, the, the, you know, the up and down axis, the Y axis, is competence is how good you are at what you do, and the x-axis is um, whatever characteristics you want to say about culture. But let's just say compassion. Let's just say you know human centered uh, is the bottom. So in the lower left, so that's low competence and low compassion. You should. Why are you a leader? <laughs> you should just get out of you know do, do a different job. <laughs> um, high competence and low compassion. Yeah, I mean, there might be some times where that's required. I mean, maybe in military circumstances, you know, you just, you know, in, in a war, you just, maybe you just have to be good at it. Um, high high uh, compassion and low competence. Yeah, I don't know. I, maybe, maybe in some nonprofits, you know, that's okay. But, um, but, but high competence and high compassion, uh, that's, those are superpowers. Um, and so, so competent and compassionate leadership is like a yin and yang. But without courage, I don't know that you'll, you know, maybe just being competent, you, you would take action, but I think it requires courage. You know, when I talk about Mark Bertolini, mm. it took tremendous courage for him to challenge one of his major investors. It took tremendous courage to say, I have a vision for a more human-centered environment, and then to push that through. Um, look at Yvonne Schwenard um, and the way he runs Patagonia. Look at, I mean, you know, the, the, 
these these are these are confident and compassionate leaders, but they have the courage of their convictions. They have the courage of their values. They're anchored in what they believe is important, and they and they live those values. That's the hardest part. Having the courage to actually take a step, having the courage to say, "Listen, I know that I'm, you know, I'm going to take a pay cut myself." <laughs> And, and, and that means that, you know, that I'm not going to have as many of the things I want, but, but we all need to do this because this is a time of shared sacrifice. Um, without courage, I don't know that you're going to take those steps. And so that's why I urge, especially leaders during these challenging times to think about is how, how can I continually model the most competent ways to try to solve problems and make those inclusive. So I'm not just the, the sage on the stage. You know, I'm the guy on the side. I'm the one that's you know, helping others to be able to solve these problems together. But I'm, I'm compassionate because I have I know that every single human that works with me has a life and has a family and has friends and they've got challenges in this era. And how am I helping them to be able to, to do the best possible? And then and then how can I have the courage to do what I know is right? Competence, compassion and courage. Gary, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I always enjoy a good conversation around social capital markets and leadership. Uh, it's great to have an expert like you on the future of work. Got to figure out what my color of my parachute is, though. I'll make sure I'll, I'll hop on that a little bit later. Gary, I want to appreciate your time coming on the Real Years Podcast. For everyone out there listening to this, for Gary Bowles, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there. And always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Gary. Appreciate you. All right. Thanks a lot. All right, good people, and thank you for tuning into this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, and if you haven't yet subscribed, then please, by all means, hit the subscribe button to start receiving notifications of this bi-weekly podcast. And for all the lucky listeners today, you are going to walk away with a free magazine. Go to real slash subscribe and use coupon code PODCAST25 at checkout to receive your first magazine for free with a year subscription. That's four magazines for the price of three. Again, folks, coupon code PODCAST25. Also, for our visual learners, if you want to watch this at home, you're cooped up during the quarantine, go to our YouTube channel at Real Leaders Magazine to see all of our interviews with guests harnessing capitalism to sustain the planet, people, and profits. Thanks again for being a Real Leader and stay tuned for the next episode of the Real Leaders Podcast.